Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cattle Call podcast. Today, we have our research call with Dr. Richard Zing. The last six months, we've been talking our feedlot call about research uh, related to protein nutrition cat-fed hostings. Brooke and I have done six different feedlot research papers where we summarize and we talk about this. And today, we have the pleasure to have the author of those papers to talk about the, the history of protein supplementation, protein nutrition in cat-fed hostings, uh, especially during the last 30 years. So let me call Dr. Zin. Hello, Dr. Zin. Hello, Pedro. How are you today? I'm doing great. Is it a good time for a call? This is a good time. Good time. Okay, that's good, Dr. Zin. So, Dr. Zin, as I mentioned before, and, and we've, we've had conversation about, about this, can you just tell us, like, how, how did you start looking on the importance of supplementing protein on those cat-fed hostings and why it's important to do that, especially during the early growing phase of those animals? Well, actually, it goes way back before that. <laughs> the, uh, a lot of the early work that I did with uh, intentionally cannulated animals was to look at what we call ruminal escape protein. In other words, the amount of protein that makes it to the small intestine and and we looked at, uh, early on, we looked at different, most every one of the sources of supplemental protein that we have. We were interested in how much of it actually makes it to the small intestine. You can see a logical progression because uh, we also measured uh, microbial protein as well. And so we looked at the relationship between the amount of organic matter uh, fermented in the rumen and microbial synthesis and or what we call net protein synthesis or flow to the small intestine, and then uh, the amount of supplemental protein or dietary protein that makes it to the small intestine. We found that it actually is relatively predictable, although uh, there's a lot of variation among protein sources in the amount of protein that escapes from the degradation. We looked at intestinal digestion of protein and we saw there's lots of differences in that. As you know, we talked about blood milk, for example, that while it has a fairly high ruminal escape value, uh, the availability of that protein uh, post-ruminal is not that good, especially lichen, which is high in blood milk, but also uh, is affected by the process of, of drying the blood milk. The, uh, so anyway, after we had uh, looked at that. We did originally a lot of uh, work with lightweight feeder calves. These would be typical for the Southwest. That'd be Arizona and California, Southern California. We would uh, mostly feed calves. And, uh, and so uh, we would look at 56 day receiving periods and protein requirements, how cattle responded to protein supplementation during that receiving period. The and obviously, cattle always responded to the protein, but but the but it wasn't very sophisticated. In other words, the absolute amount. We looked at feeding uh, increasing levels of protein, and we found that that uh, you could feed, for example, almost forty percent potency, you know, and still not optimize performance in your calf. In fact, it goes down. And so we began to. Uh, to look at both factors, we, we began to sense the importance of microbial protein and the quality of that protein as opposed to ruminal escape protein. So in the early work, we looked at, uh, and this is going to be difficult because um, 
we needed a source of uh, protein, rumulose cake protein that would be uh, high in what we consider to be limiting amino acids that would be in the thymine lysine. So the, the very early work we were looking at uh, used fish meal and we restrict and we restricted available protein so that we would manipulate microbial synthesis. In other words, decrease that and increase uh, the supply of dietary protein. And, and so this way, this is how we did that original work and looked at kind of almost at the same time we're looking at both non-protein nitrogen requirements as well as uh, looking at the relationship between flow of uh, amino acids to the small intestine. Early on, back when I was at Oklahoma State, we looked, we determined that actually the adjustability of amino acids, alpha amino protein in the small intestine is fairly constant. And uh, that it averaged somewhere close to around 80%. So, and the NRC picks up on that. So you'll see that, you know, when it, when it did the 1984 NRC, they, they actually used that as an estimate of the uh, availability of amino acids that flow into the small intestine that would be digested in the small intestine, we call metabolites of amino acids. So that was the beginning. We found that, that the, actually the relationship between both methionine and lysine supply to the small intestine in those early studies was almost perfectly related to the efficiency of energy utilization. So we saw that it, they were in fact limiting amino acids. And as we met those, and, and very closely co-limited amino acids. So as we met the requirements for methionine and lysine, uh, we would optimize the efficiency of energy utilization. This is probably what you noticed, you know, when you were talking about the work uh, in previous podcasts or whatever, that it actually, uh, if you don't pay attention to the metabolizable amino acid requirements, the efficiency of uh, energy utilization during at least the first 112 days, or maybe as much as 168 days in the Catholic Holstein, will be less. In other words, they'll eat more feed to compensate for the low, uh, for the insufficiency in supply of, uh, or inadequate supply of metabolizable amino acids. They'll eat too much feed. And so uh, by meeting those requirements, then the efficiency goes from, let's say, 78. 82% all the way to 100% of expected. So this was uh, this is what we noticed, and and so there's several papers we published uh, to demonstrate that effect. Clearly, this was not an easy thing to do with natural protein, except for fish meal. But the problem with fish, the two problems with fish meal. One is that you can only feed so much. It's not it's not it's not very palatable in in the diet, and so cattle. You feed more than let's say half a percent, you're gonna, I mean, five percent, you're gonna uh, see some reductions in feed intake due to susceptibility of the diet. And uh, but the other protein sources simply can't make up the difference, they're not good sources of refining and or lysine. So, this was the dilemma. So, we looked at different ways to try to overcome that particular problem, very difficult. So then we were early on, we became interested in protected amino acids. If we knew that methionine and lysine were the most limiting, then we thought, well, we could just add those and, and get the, the same kind of result that we would get by adding, let's say, fish meal. 
but that's been a struggle. The supply uh, of these amino acids is you have to feed quite a bit of it in order to get that those levels up to where where we need to be. And we just haven't been able to get the overall response that we had expected. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. When you try to meet requirements, one of the things that fish mill is also an excellent source of both calcium and phosphorus and, and also histidine. So we're just, we're just, uh, it's been a comp, it's been a complicated issue, but there's no, uh, during that early period, the cattle respond to uh, meeting the metabolized amino acid requirements, and that that response will carry over to the whole feeding period. So it, it's uh, it's just an area that we continue to be interested in. It was amazing during those, this time that Brooke and I have been doing to see the progression of the study, and and we've talked about how how hard it is to do those studies because there is always something that could be limiting the performance of, of those animals that we, we do not always expect. And one of the other things that I, I learned by doing that and talking with you is a lot of times those studies, uh, we won't see the major differences in, and you've mentioned this in, in our conversation today, the the difference won't be in the gain. It's actually going to be on the intake, and, and that's going to be the energy utilization of the diet. That's when we're going to see the response because the animals are going to eat as much as they can to meet their requirements. So our goal is actually to meet that requirements with less intake, let's say like that, and, and then we will enhance the energy utilization of the diet. But there, there are so many factors affecting that but we, I think we've been able, you have been able to, we've been able to read, you've been able to do those studies. And it's been clear how important it is to meet those requirements in that early phase, that early growing phase, so, so the animals can ex respond to their maximum potential of gain. I think that's, that's very, very important. One of the things that, one of the things that does happen is that, you know, nowadays we take cattle to increasingly heavier and heavier final weights. And, and so consequently, uh, the time on feed has, has increased from, let's say, 280 days early on to about 340 days currently. And because of that, um, those, those extra days on feed and so forth, the effect of that final, the intermediate and final uh, growing phase is great. And so, you know, that early, that, but that first period is still, still very, very important. And, but still, you know, the overall effect, uh, the impact at the end is, is going to be. Um, you kind of dilute the, 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 you, the, you dilute the effect, you yeah. do dilute the effect, but, but it's still very, very important, especially um, from a nutritional standpoint, it's something that, that you should always pay close attention to. That's, that's good. Yeah, it, that, that's a, a great point. I remember the first paper that Brooke and I did uh, during this series was from 1988. And back then, cattle were on feed for 280 days, if I'm not wrong, and they were finished with 1,050 pounds, something like that. And we talked about our last group last year in 2020, where we 
took them up to over 330 days and we finished them with 1450. So those like were 400 extra pounds or almost 40% more weight than, than 30 years ago. So that, that dilution factor actually. Well, that's, and that's a very, that's a very, very important, uh, very important point. And so, but, but again, you know, as nutritionists, we don't want to emphasize that early growing phase, but still, uh, yeah, if we take them to the heavier weights, uh, we do dilute uh, that early response because, uh, well, just, Stay longer. So many things, there's so many things that happen after that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. So, Dr. Zin, just to, to wrap up and, and finish, uh, we, it, we're still doing research in protein. And, and my question is, where, where is the future? Where do you think we are going to go from now? Are we, are we going to be feeding protected amino acids? Uh, is there anyone, like you've talked about methionine and lysine, and you, we've had mentioned a little bit about histidine. Is that is that something that will come up? Do you think? And where where do you think uh, is going to be the next couple of years? What what we're going to be doing? I think that that's a very good question, Pedro. The clearly there's we have the concern not only of metabolizable amino acids, metabolizable protein, and uh, and so. Um, when we feed protected amino acids, we, we can't ignore um, the potential response to metabolizable protein itself. In other words, protein itself is having an effect. And uh, independently, let's say, or not necessarily independently, but collaterally with uh, the effect of specific amino acids on growth. So, you know, we do need to pay uh, a little bit more attention to that. The new NRC, uh, that one actually has dropped uh, metabolizable amino acids. They're just, they're just looking at metabolizable protein. And, and even then, those estimates that, that are based on the new NRC, those, those go much, much higher metabolizable protein requirements early on than the Let's say the NRC nineteen eighty four, and, and I have no idea exactly where those, how that's come, how they came about with that. So, but but most of the cattle on feed are are uh, are heavier yearlings, but but all over the U.S. and and really Mexico as well, um, and and everywhere in fact, uh, feeding Holsteins has become um, increasingly popular, increasingly important, and so. This uh, this topic of protein requirements is going to be uh, not going away. This is going to be an extremely important topic. Right now, you know, as you're probably aware, in Imperial Valley, Southern California, Arizona, they basically keep one diet, and uh, and so the calves aren't they're not they're not growing they're not feeding a, a initial startup diet and then a they don't do that like we do with conventional cows come right in and, and uh, they just basically have one one diet. This would so there would have to be some changes, you know, in that regard. Um, universally. But I, I do think that there's a lot of promise with protected uh, amino acids and and I think that uh, it's just that we have a lot more to look at. Like I said before, you can't feed, for example, fish meal or 
meat and bone meal because we don't feed that anymore, but we did at one time. And you can't feed those things without and ignore the fact that they also are important sources of minerals. And um, so there's a lot of things that we have to consider as we're balancing for, uh, especially early on, the calcium requirements, the phosphorus requirements, magnesium requirements, all these things are going to play into what we do when we pull out certain feed supplements, let's say, and just try to put in a simple amino acid in the diet. So I think there's going to be, we're going to go forward, but we're going to have to look at metabolizable protein. We're going to have to look at metabolizable amino acids, and we're going to have to be very careful about the minerals, the macro minerals, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, and and then maybe even uh, the trace Perfect. No, that's really good. Uh, I think that was that was a really nice overview. Uh, and it's I'm always learning when I talk to you, so it's it is good for me to to think about new ideas and and where to go from from now. So, Doctor Z, I would like to thank you once again. I don't know if you have any final comments, any final thoughts. All right. Thank you, Pedro. Uh, always, always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this month is being heavily on you. I, I appreciate your time and, and uh, I thank our listeners to keep listening to us. If you have any questions, any comments to our podcast, please send an email to kettlecallucd at gmail.com and it will be my pleasure to answer your questions. So thank you very much to listen and don't forget, it's always a good time for a kettle call. Thank you. Some cat.